Bachdorf is the creator of several acclaimed graphic novels, including My Friend Dahmer, a memoir of his experiences growing up alongside the notorious serial killer Jeffrey Dahmer, Trashed, an incredibly entertaining but also seriously unsettling account of the roots and unbelievable scale of our throwaway society, and now, most recently, the landmark book Kent State, Four Dead in Ohio, a carefully researched rendering of the massacre of students at Kent State on May 4th, 1970, an event that shocked the nation and supercharged the anti-war movement, and also an event that Backdurf insists we remember as a means of maintaining the well-being of democracy itself. We discuss his distinctive art style, the joys and challenges of accepting the adaptation of one's work into film, comics as a somehow both established and emergent art form that's constantly evolving, and the ethics of representing violence. Ultimately though, Bachdorf I think illuminates how his work should be seen as a kind of interrogation. He's looking for answers, probing the historical record and taking artistic risks that pay off in unexpected ways. So, you know, I wanted to start with your new book, Kent State, Four Dead in Ohio's punchy, straightforward subtitle, which um, is, of course, a reference to Crosby, Stills, Nash and Young's still, I think, breathtaking song, Ohio. You know, the structure and the message of that song so clearly reinforces the purpose of your book. Um, and, you know, the glowing Forbes review of the book cites the song, which you don't actually mention in the narrative of the book. Uh, but what I thought was interesting in that review is that they get the line wrong. The author says that the song asks us, what if you knew her and found her dead on the ground? How can we run when we know? How can you run? Yeah, you like it, it's sort of trying to reach for the the political, the kind of broader social um, meaning. But the line actually, it's more direct. Musically, I think, uh, and that's how songwriting kind of works, right? It's it's about trying to hit you with this this urgency. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, I see clear parallels, like um, not just in terms of the uh, the kind of message of that song, but just the the feeling of it. Right. Like um, mm-hmm. the uh, the fact that, you know, art can clearly engage us to educate us. This is to me like the uh, the impact that your work kind of has. And actually, you know, I watched um, a roundtable on songwriting hosted by The Hollywood Reporter where David Crosby, who, according to Neil Young, actually broke down into tears right after the song was recorded, um, mm-hmm. talks about writing that song and says he's like blown away that it gets played at weddings and stuff. But that's sort of the function of like art and performance to kind of flow in unpredictable ways through society and sort of touch people. Like, has that been sort of your relationship to art in general, that it's like pleasure first, maybe and engagement first and then learning something after? Any, any thoughts on that in general? <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, it's always, it always comes down to, um, you know, we make art because we must, because it triggers something inside of us. It's a very, at its root, it's a very selfish process. You know, we're trying to, to scratch an itch. Yeah. And, and then you think about other things beyond that, but um, uh, it always begins in a very personal level especially when you're doing very personal work. Yeah. It's like, it's immediate. Right. Um, right. And I, I think like, that's what I'm so interested in with comics is like, it's a, it's a unique mode of, of mediation of, of media mm-hmm. production. Like Ohio is also used at the end of uh, the sea of fire episode of Ken Burns's uh, Vietnam war documentary. 
Right. And I, you know, I actually kind of felt like it was misused somehow. Like that particular episode of the documentary doesn't really offer much critical context for what happened at Kent, Kent, Kent no. State. No, it's it's almost it's almost just thrown in there as a, I wouldn't say it was an afterthought, but they just kind of they very quickly just gloss over it. You know? Yeah, it's like I agree. It's, I agree. it's just there for shock almost. And you would think that with a documentary like that, that has so much archival footage where you actually hear the audio of Glenn Frank pleading to students mm-hmm. to flee in order not to be slaughtered, that it would hit a lot harder. But the whole thing is like the mode of mediation, right? Like the kind of context that is missing there is what you provide in Kent State. And and for that reason, I think it's just such a massive accomplishment, um, oh, you know, you. in terms of the way that, yeah, you're just arranging and presenting how events unfold. To be fair, to be fair, you know, I'm just covering, I'm covering four days here, which, mm-hmm. uh, you know, devote. 280 pages to where Burns is covering what 20 years. Yeah. So, so I mean, right. you know, that, that I think, uh, I'll chalk that up to my decision to focus the book very narrowly. So, uh, you know, that the full impact of it really, really hits home. Yeah. I mean, and in narrowing the, the focus, you're making this, this narrative decision and you've, you've talked about how you've, you've tried to study film really closely in order to, achieve a cinematic quality in your graphic storytelling, even describing your process as partly about seeing things like a film reel. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, I I constantly go back to John Lewis and Nate Powell's March as a, as a book that's obviously concerned with using that cinematic quality to convert the reader. Um, But, you know, I think the, the thing that's happening is that books like March and I would put Kent state in this category are also doing something else. They're sort of like, inverting the pyramid that puts film at the top and makes comics somehow a secondary medium. Do you feel like we're reaching a sort of saturation point now with graphic storytelling where it is emerging as like its own medium, like not necessarily answerable to like film as its reference point? Well, I feel it's, I feel it's always been that way. Right. Actually. Mm-hmm. I mean, I mean, I, I don't think comics take a backseat to anybody and never have. For sure. I mean, not not at its schlockiest level, obviously. Of course, you know every art has schlock. I mean, film certainly. Is oh, for sure. Plenty of schlock. Um, so I, you know, I'm, I when I said that, I think I was putting it in terms that maybe non comics fans could could grasp a little easier, you know, because I don't I don't think comics fans really really need that explanation. Fair enough. Um, and, and that's what's kind of, yeah, interesting about this moment. Um, you know, there are, uh, there's a, like a language, a grammar to comics that, that people who read it understand. Um, you know, in, in your, like, I watched your uh, City Club of Cleveland presentation on the book. And, uh, you know, at one point you describe a splash page that concludes a specific mm-hmm. chapter in the book. It's this night scene during the night of the helicopters. And, mm-hmm. and you talk about how there's something valuable that comes from putting yourself as an artist in the space itself and like taking it in with your five senses you know i think that was my favorite page from the book it was genuinely breathtaking it's one of mine too yeah it's one of mine too. i could tell you're like you know i'm i'm yeah that one really came got it you know once in a while you do a page where it's just it just snaps together just perfectly and you're like oh yeah man yeah and then you know the next day you start a page that takes you, you know, you have to do like three times because hmm. it's just total crap. Yeah. It was um, clearly like, I could tell it was special, you know, like that oh, you were thanks. inspired there and it inspires, I think a meditativeness in the reader, like just in, in terms of, you know, dwelling with that, that drawing. 
And, you know, you also note in your presentation a few years ago at the Akron Summit uh, Public Library that where you're talking about my friend Dahmer, that there's a ton of complex information in each panel of a comic, whether it was easy to draw or not, and that that kind of mm -hmm. forces the reader to try and perceive how the page flows. And this is definitely a part of uh, Henry Jenkins's argument in his new big book comics and stuff. He's trying to mm -hmm. read the legibility of comics in, as this mm -hmm. rhythmic meditative thing. Um, I just wonder in terms of like, you know, I know you came to long form graphic storytelling uh, later in your career. How did you begin to really think in terms of like what Will Eisner called sequential art? Like, is it just about putting in those 10,000 hours or whatever to make it intuitive? Were there key milestones along the way or kind of breakthroughs that gave you a sense of this kind of grammar that comics have? You know, I'm not, I'm not clear. Obviously, it was always there. How I often describe it is, you know, I wasted like 20 years of my career doing some, something else when I should have been doing this long form narrative, which I took to so easily. And it was just kind of, uh, it was really freeing, you know, I mean, I started doing it and I was like, oh God, yes. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I honestly think it just comes from a lifetime at that point. It was a lifetime because my first book, my first full graphic novel I published when I was 50 years old. Mm. Um, it was just a lifetime of reading and making and studying comics, you know, and all of that stuff that I took in just, I, I maybe subconsciously just, um, you know, consumed and then spit it out as my own comics. Mm -hmm. Um, but I, I took to it very naturally. And, and it's clear, you know, like your, your breakthrough book, my friend Dahmer shows, you know, it's in its impact alone, um, that you have developed this, this unique style. And like, before we dig yeah. into Kent state, I was hoping we could talk a little bit about the the impact of my friend Dahmer. Sure. You know, it was, you know, this is a, a book that's now a major motion picture, as, as it's sometimes called. Um, and that film, like, it's it's an experience that is obviously completely distinct from the book. Um, yeah. And, yeah. Yeah. And you talk on the Virtual Memories podcast about making peace with letting the text go and even admit that you had difference of, differences of opinion with its director, Mark Myers. Um my question is basically like, do you at least feel that the film got the themes and the concepts of your book, right? Those are less pronounced, but they're there. Yeah. yeah. I was happy with the film. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, I mean, there were differences. The biggest difference is that he, Mark decided to drop the narration, which the book has. Mm -hmm. And that's, you know, that's a key difference between the two because the film then becomes just straight narrative where the book has those two voices. It has, you know, my teenage voice, which you see in the dialogue and what happens on the page. And then my adult voice, which you see, which you read in the narration, which of course has the advantage of hindsight. And, you know, he, that voice knows what's happening. So he can reflect on, you know, things that happened in 1978 or 1975. I understand why he did it, but it makes uh, it, it it makes his film very different than the book, and because you just strip off an entire layer of the storytelling, so that's the key difference, I think. Yeah, and it's an important layer for me. You know that that lack of what you call hindsight for me represents you know what I find so valuable uh, in that in that book. Like so much mm. of my friend Dahmer is about, of course, Dahmer's path to becoming a killer. And these, these right. moments, these almost painful moments of, of, you know, 
peace and friendship that he experienced along the way and how that gave way to a personal hell that he then inflicted on others. Um, and what you do then is like very different from how a film or even a documentary film could depict it. Um, you have an image after the prologue of Dahmer at the top of a split path. And it like perfectly symbolizes the killer's path. Everybody, everybody brings that. It's up. great. You know, <laughs> you know, honestly, I was just trying to compose a nice looking page. Hmm. You know, a lot of people, I have to really be honest <laughs> there. A lot of people like, you know, see a double meaning there, but I, I did not intend that to be, That's so funny. I think really, I mean, looking back, I think Dahmer really only had one path. I mean, it was out of his hands, you know, um, he did at some point make a choice to kill and uh, you know, was that choice inevitable? Eh, possibly, possibly the, really the only, the only thing that could have stopped him was is, is if an adult had jumped into that path and said, hold it. So, yes. you know, the two paths yeah. is that's a little misleading, but. That's interesting how like we as viewers are making these interpretive right. choices <laughs> ourselves and like projecting them onto the text but you know it's it's you know it's something i guess that's out of your control as a cartoonist you make these choices as a cartoonist but then you kind of let it go um but you know the book does still straddle almost like an academic and a pop cultural uh mode of representation and that's what i'm so interested in and it runs throughout all your work like the characteristic way that you blend the action and the narration with what you just called um, your kind of adult voices, which is characterized by a barrage of critical mm -hmm. questions where you're probing the historical record and, and looking through your own memory to try and like theorize and understand the event. Um, at one point, you literally ask in the book, where right. were the adults? And you seem to suggest that he maybe could have been saved by a more nurturing um, environment. Before we get into uh, Trashed, which is a book I loved so much, I wondered, how did you evolve this inquisitive style, basically? Like, when did you realize you could put your own voice and especially your own questions right into the text? That might have come from, you know, the comic strip I did for many years, because then you have captions in a comic strip a lot of times. Um, I think it probably right. did. Um, I don't always use a narration or captions. I mean, my first book didn't have them at all. Uh, Trashed only has them... Hmm on certain pages you know when i like delve into the uh the details of uh the, you know the garbage crisis otherwise the narration itself which is the bulk of the book doesn't have any captions at all so i mean i don't want to get mm. locked into that where you know i feel i have to have captions i mean uh mm. kent state and Dahmer both have them and i think they work um i think it's important and with Dahmer. You know, I really wanted to get across that tremendous feeling of regret. And, you know, I mean, I'm questioning all my own actions from that time. You know, I mean, I, I don't think that I'm to blame mm -hmm. for what Dahmer did. I don't think my friends are to blame. But, you know, there are no heroes in that book. I mean, that's the point of it. I mean, everybody, everybody fucked up. And sometimes that's, that's how life works. You know, I mean, that's just the way it is. Um, but I wanted to, you know, because you don't want to leave yourself open and, and, you know, I got a little bit of this from the movie, which, which doesn't have a narration. Um, you know, they think like, you know, what an asshole, I mean, you know, 
doesn't he doesn't he have any regret doesn't he you know feel like he has anything to answer for well if you read the book you know and that's what i tell people read the damn book you know it's all there it drips off every page so um yeah now i forget where i was going with that so all right let's move on <laughs> yeah i mean it, it the movie makes this choice to uh give the i think the character neil your feelings effectively um and and that's a kind of interesting choice right to redirect the the emotions of the viewer to cause it to identify differently than right yeah that that was another yeah we we kind of argued about that because the real neil actually was probably the one who was most enthusiastic about our crazy antics not someone who ever expressed any you know the slightest hint of regret at the time i mean now we all look back on that time very but very differently of course sure yeah, and you know the the feeling that you obviously experience in that book is is this kind of almost vicarious humiliation, like where Dahmer's not feeling humiliated, you kind of feel humiliated for him, and and this kind of in a way brings us to trash. Like there are these moments in trash where trashed where um, the reader it does experience this kind of vicarious <laughs> humiliation, where you know you're just bombarded by diapers mm. and maggots, and it's just this you know, defiling thing. Um, and, and, you know, the end of that book is this moment where spoiler alert, there's this like argument against a a kind of idealism Mm -hmm. or purity. Um, and, and you, the whole book in some ways, both the narration and the exposition is about that. It's about trying to give a a bigger context in just how knee deep Mm -hmm. in shit we Mm -hmm. really are. Um, and, and so it's it's couching your personal experience in this larger conversation about the rise of a mm-hmm. throwaway society. And I guess, you know, I wondered, you mentioned this before, just like how the, the things have gotten really worse since the publishing of that book. Do you feel in a way, I don't know, I guess vindicated when you see that as NPR and other sources are now reporting, not only is recycling a collapsed false promise, it was a false mm-hmm. promise from the start. The plastic, the plastics industry invested in a PR campaign to right. promote recycling in order to make us more comfortable with consuming right. it. And it was a lie. It was all a lie. Yeah. 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 And the whole, and the really, the most important thing was to uh, emblazon the recycling logo right. on everything right. in order to give us this right. satisfying sense that we are throwing away something that, you know, will be recycled rather than just. Well, they call it wish, they call it wish cycling. Yeah. <laughs> right. And most of it goes straight to the landfill. Yeah. The, And, and like the, you know, the biggest thing that I think is, is, you know, valuable, um, about trashed, you know, it, it is using narration to pull the reader in, but then you're, you're also conveying the sheer scale of, of the empire of garbage that we've produced. Are you at all reassured in a sense, like as an artist by the fact that, you know, even as the EPA continues to try and more or less mask the problem, you've added this text to an important conversation about, you know, uh, moving away from a society of widespread, just waste and overproduction. Like, do you, do you feel like it is an act of truth telling as well as storytelling? Sure. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, somebody has to, um, there's been, there has been, there has not been many, many works of any kind, film, documentary, whatever, devoted to this, to this problem. And which is amazing because it's so vast. Um, I would chalk it up to um, 
it's messy process, but it's very, very efficient. It's maybe the most efficient government process that the Western world has because the garbage mm-hmm. is just swept away so quickly because they understand the political ramifications of letting shit pile up in front of people's houses. Yeah. So it's swept away so quickly that nobody really is concerned about it after it's, it's taken away. And it's, so it's, it becomes just something that's completely forgotten, but it's, it's not. Yeah. Rendering it invisible is clearly like the key part of the whole process. Like right. you talk about the money involved in it. That's a part of it too, but mm-hmm invisibilizing it is almost more important. And you mentioned that there's just not enough. I think it's, you're right that there aren't enough, especially like popular texts that expose this fact. Um, What you get uh, sometimes are very academic treatments of it. Like there's Mm -hmm. this documentary uh, that I think came out last year called Anthropocene, which is based on the photography of Edward Bertinsky. Um, You know, there, there was a documentary before this that was called Manufactured Landscapes that was also about the just sheer scale of production on the planet and the level of waste that it's leading to. Um, but like in those documentaries, unlike your work, and I'm not putting them down, they're, they're impactful in their own way. Um, what they're not doing is telling us that these are unnatural man-made environments. Like it's, right. it's a kind of disembodied voice in these documentaries. Um, and so we just have these images wash over us. Mm-hmm. And I just wonder, like, is that even persuasive, right? Like, um, are we, are we in fact in, in this, I get this from your work, like a kind of intense desire to give the public as much context as possible. Um, yeah. Any well, I like to, I, you know, my view on that and, and, and with trash specifically is, you know, I try to make it personal. I try to make it a personal story about people, people mm-hmm. who are caught up in this process and you know you have that garbage crew and we get to know them and it's it's much is it's as much uh an ode to the working man as it is you know a a story about this huge garbage problem i mean it's both yeah and the impact that this huge garbage problem has on these 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 poor schlubs who are picking this stuff up you know and so i think if you give it that human context that maybe maybe people will understand it a little better or maybe it will have more of an impact on the reader. Yeah. I think it has a lot to do with um, that for sure. I mean, the, the, as I say, the kind of like palpable experience of being soiled along with you, it really sucks you in. I wish I'd made it a scratch and sniff book. That would have really driven the, (laughs) driven the, driven the point. So not surprisingly, (laughs) I love that idea. (laughs) Not surprisingly, my publisher was not really keen on that. That's such a good idea. I can't imagine booksellers would have been either to have a book, you know, reeking of dog shit. (laughs) And certainly you don't want to do that with my friend Dahmer, dear Lord. No, Um, no, no. Um, the so like the you know in trash there's this unique voice and what's funny is is that you you know that book won the Eisner Award for lettering specifically yeah. Yeah. and in a weird way that's a testament to its voice as well like there's you know comics have to represent voices visually and so I thought it was really interesting that you were awarded that honor deservedly so um, and I just really you know honestly appreciate your use of thick black lines and representing dialogue to express anger, yelling, intensity, in, oh, in Kent, you. Yeah. you know, it's, it's, it's something that's common to like all of your books and in Kent state, um, it's, you've, you've clearly got a high level of kind of control over your, 
your lettering where you're capturing the distinct ways of communicating. Well, I am an Eisner Award winner after all. You're an Eisner <laughs> Award winner, exactly. Um, I was really pissed about winning by being nominated for that award because, <laughs> you know, it's like, really? That's it? Lettering? But, uh, um, you know, the more I thought about it, the cooler it became. And I, I, I was really very gratified to to win it because, yeah, I, I worked very hard on that lettering. And particularly in trash, it's it's yeah, it is. It's such a key part of of the story, and it's such a it's such a something that's so unique to comics. You know that use of sound effects in that way that it becomes sound effects is a visual element that's totally unique to comics. Nobody else can do that. Mm-hmm. So you know, I'm proud to be part of that tradition, and uh, I was I was overjoyed to win that award actually. And I think rightfully so. It's it's you know your. I just consume your lettering in a, in a way that, you know, other people, you know, there are other artists who have, have their own unique styles. I know you've spoken with Noah Van Skyver. I really enjoy his lettering style. Mm -hmm. There's a a wonderful um, artist named Catherine Ocelot from Quebec who publishes with Conundrum Press who has this gorgeous, you know, lettering style. I know you're influenced by Spain Rodriguez in your style. Um, That balance of dialogue with exposition though, I think is specific to your art style. Um, but I guess I wanted to talk too about how comic, you know, we, we've kind of gestured to uh, the interpretive choices that comic readers make. Uh, Henry Jenkins, who I mentioned, talks about how comic readers tend to flip uh, through books first and then like reread. Hmm. Do you ever feel like it's, and I think that's sort of true. I know I see my kids read that way uh, with comics and certainly it's not something you can do with fiction exactly hmm. uh, or, you know, uh, with just prose. Do you ever feel strange about how much work it takes to compose these books and the and the kind of disconnect between that and how people read them? Or is that just part of all art in a sense? Yeah, I suppose. I mean, I remember when I was a um, really voracious comics reader when I was a teenager. And I would probably flip through very quickly, say, you know, the latest floppy. They were all floppies then. But then I'd sit down and I'd read it once and I'd probably read it two or three times, you know. Mm-hmm within the next few days and really each time I'd focus on something different, you know, one time, the first time I'd read the story and, and get that immediate impact of a story. And then I'd go back and I'd look at the art and then I'd go back and look in greater detail and, and everything that was put together. So I think most comics readers uh, approach books that way. Um, the layman, you know, the people who, who read my books who really don't read comics. I don't, I don't really know how they take it in, honestly. Um, yeah. It's probably a di- in a different way altogether, but you know, you can't really worry about it. I mean, I worry about, you know, comics fans who, who I, I think that this is how they're going to read it. And if they're flipping through the book, I mean, I use so many splash pages that, you know, you'll, you'll get a, an impact that way too. So I guess it works out. You know, I think it's a little bit analogous to film here, right? Like um, there are people who just watch movies to unplug and that's great. But then there are people who want to watch it over and over and over again and really Mm. savor every frame. Um, And I think, you know, some of the the power of comics is really found in rereading and reading at different speeds and that kind of Mm -hmm. thing. Um, But yeah, I I definitely want to, you know, talk about your newest book, Kent State. Uh, uh, In that book, you have this moment at the very beginning that I thought was really interesting where you have Alison Krauss talking about the feeling that fiction is frivolous, uh, mm. especially when 
you know, certain pressing social issue issues become visible. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just hard to uh, immerse yourself in something escapist. Um, I, I felt like that was a kind of almost subtle commentary on this surge in interest today in graphic nonfiction, you know, in comic biographies. There seems to be a huge market um, for that that particular, you know, way of using the comic medium. Um, you think, you know, that there is this this appetite today for, you know, the the use of art to reacquaint us with this untold history. What's what do you suppose is going on with that? Well, I think it's a relatively new subgenre of comics that a lot of people are exploring, and we're getting a lot of really interesting work coming out of it. Um, it, ha- it hadn't been done a lot before. I mean, Mouse, obviously, but mm-hmm. um, before that, it had been done at all. Not not a lot. Um, no. Yeah, I mean, I'm trying to maybe war comics, but um, that quote from Alison Krauss is it, that's that's researched, of course. That comes that was something her her boyfriend Barry uh, really? recounted that she was having those thoughts. So all of the dialogue in the book. I mean, you notice the page after page of footnotes in the back. I mean, I'm not making up dialogue, you know, I mean, so it's all sourced. It all comes from some, something, either a friend's account or, or, you know, a written report or, or something or something for their lives. So I, I just tried not to invent, you know, invent something out of, out of thin air. Um, so, but yeah, I mean, it's a good point. I mean, I think, um, it's certainly wide open. I mean, there are some people that are doing it. I think it's it's challenging for a lot of comics creators because it requires you know you to, you to do different things. I mean, writing history is is not easy. Um, mm-hmm. Not to say that any kind of writing is easy, but there are things that are easier than writing history. Right. So, I mean, there's a lot of there's a lot of uh, you know you can make a lot of wrong turns with that. So. Um, but yeah, I've seen a lot of really great stuff recently. Um, you know, one of the artists that I've spoken to on this podcast, Veronica Post, talks about how, or we talk about how, like, um, th- at the beginning of her book, she makes this really kind of, for her, important gesture to say, this is not a work of journalism. And that kind of frees her up hmm. to fictionalize and dramatize. And I think that's in part about recognizing that there's a specific responsibility to doing journalism, to writing mm-hmm. history. Um, and it's, you know, maybe particularly pronounced right now when it's clear that Kent State, like the relevance of the book is not lost on people right now, you know, like yeah, this no. is something that a lot of people are talking about um, in regards to the book. It's it's a book that starts with you at 10 years old in the car with your mother and you're aware of the conflict, but only abstractly until right. the National Guard actually starts rolling in this this moment of an abstract thing, especially violence becoming concrete is so interesting. Right. And I thought Mm it, I thought it definitely echoed, you know, classic books like, you know, mouse. uh, um, But I also thought about, you know, Marjan Satrapi's Persepolis and how as a child in that book, Satrapi talks about having, again, only this abstract sense of the war and -hmm. unrest around her and how the book is really about um, a a revolutionary awakening to death in that, in that book. Mm. Um, do you get the sense that, you know, as Kent State comes out in 2020, that young people are experiencing that sort of awakening as well with the deployment of troops to Portland and elsewhere to suppress Black Lives Matter protests and, and the live streaming of police brutality? 
Mm-hmm. I mean, does it just hit different differently today in terms of like that awakening? And what do you think it's what do you think its effects are going to be? Well, I don't think I don't think they're at the same level yet because, of course, uh, um, you know, the troops have an open fire. Uh, now, an African American person would 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 uh, say very differently because, of course, they've been subjected as a community to this kind of violence for you know, hundreds of years. I mean, to them, it's it's you know an everyday occurrence that right. cops are going to shoot someone. Um, so it's you know it's a, it's a question of white privilege, um, which is a which is a you know a big part of the book uh, as well. Um, that's that's why Kent had the had the the impact that it did to some degree because you know it was happening to white kids. Um, so yeah, how do people? Pre- I don't know. You know, it, it's hard to say how we're going to process what's happening now right? that we're in the moment. Yeah. And I mean, we are literally in the moment. And this upcoming week is going to be absolute fucking hell, no doubt. Um, and I, you know, I don't know. I mean, I think you need a bit of distance before you can decide how these things, you know, play out. And we need to see who, you know, what part of society wins and what part loses and the impact of that is and on and on and on. I mean, it's not, it's not as easy to, to just sit here and say, well, it's going to be like this or that. Yeah. Well, it's funny that you use the language of winning and losing. I mean, I watched to my great, you know, torment the Amy Coney Barrett uh, debate, mm-hmm. right. In the Senate. And, you know, Mitch McConnell ends that debate by talking about how elections have consequences and how the left can't win all the time. Um, Hmm. And I was just so unsettled by that sort of logic of winners and losers. But that is sort of what it's come down to. It's it's politics as a kind of combat sport. Absolutely. Um, And it it was that in 1970, too. I mean, you know, uh, at least in America, we've circled completely back around Mm -hmm. of course we have this you know this antiquated two-party system as well so Mm -hmm. um you don't really get the representation that you know some other some other countries get Mm -hmm. um whether that results in in you know a a true say in government is is an open debate but um you know it's very much it's devolved in this country it's, it's come down to to a sporting event you know you're not really rooting it's it's about you have your team and you're going to support your team no matter what whether they suck or whether they don't i mean it's been completely removed from any logic it's just this uh this tribal loyalty now and a kind of spectacle like the you know there's a way in mm-hmm. which like you know your book one of the ways that you've talked about kent state is that it exposed a kind of white naivete about the you know, state's mm-hmm. ability to monopolize the use of force to just maintain basically the status quo. I mean, um, you know, that's a moment where I think, you know, the global public, if such a thing can be like mm-hmm. described, did oh, kind of wake up to the reality of, of you know, the clash of, of various forces. Um, and I think Black Lives Matter and the uprising for Black Lives is having the same kind of effect. But as you say, it's kind of hard to anticipate what the like long-term effects of that will be. The New York Times reported that there was this surge in, in positive uh, public opinion, basically, around Black Lives Matter immediately after uh, the murder of George Floyd. But now it seems as though it's kind of uh, evening out to some extent, right? And so, Well, yeah, I mean, you've got the right-wing propaganda machine yeah. swung into full gear. So, I mean, they've been hitting it 
over and over and over and over and over again. So, yeah. But, you know, so, I, but let's, let's get back to your work. <laughs> um, <Yeah. laughs> I'm, you know, I'm certainly kind of obviously inspired in a lot of ways by the potential of this medium to work on the viewer. Um, in my teaching, I use comic books as much as I can. And, and I think it's especially, I don't know why, but I feel as though it's especially powerful when it comes to the representation of violence. Um, because it can be this, you know, t we, we spectacularize violence, like we aestheticize it, we, we glamorize it in mm -hmm. pop culture. Um, but you know, true. and, and I think the, the whole thing is with comics, you, you know, it's, it's, it's a livelier text than just prose, but it's not as spectacular in some ways as something like a film or even a documentary film. And, and like, you know, the book for, I read the, the part of the book, 67 shots, uh, on the Kent state shootings. And it talks mm -hmm. about how it wasn't the numbers of dead that made Kent state endure in the U S the collective memory of the United States. It was that dissent and lawful assembly was met with gunfire. Um, and, mm -hmm. and you really convey that in the book, uh, through this careful depiction of the events leading up to it and the, and the actual like moments of, uh, uh, death and destruction. Um, box Brown has spoken on this podcast about how comics use symbols to address violence without reproducing the trauma um, and actually says that your achievement with my, my friend Dahmer is untouchable as an example of this. Uh, hmm. In Kent State, you show so much police brutality. Um, the ethics of representing violence, I think, on the whole, it's supposed to be somehow intuitive. Like we're supposed to know that certain things are tasteful while other things are too graphic. But I think it's important to like explore what that means. Um, when you were depicting these moments of violence, you know, what kinds of reflection were you trying to encourage with these panels? What was your goal? Um, you know, was it about just humanizing suffering or, or was there more of a, an attempt to convey like to the reader, how they, you know, how they should be moved by the representation of that suffering? I don't know. Well, it's all those things. Um, you know, those images have never been shown before because they don't exist. Mm -hmm. um, you know, the actual moment when those bullets go tearing through flesh and bone. Those don't exist uh, because the photographers, very rightly, were all <laughs> eating dirt at that point. And mm -hmm. they were in the line of fire, and, and one of them was even shot. So that's the power of comics, right? You can create those images based on medical reports, morgue reports, you know, news accounts, whatever. I knew what happened. I knew how these people fell, and I could recreate those in very fine detail. Now we have those photos that come after those iconic photos that show the carnage. Um, but we don't have that moment. And I thought all along, you know, this is what comics can bring to this story. And it's important because in this country, and I think in a lot of countries, you know, that violence is an abstract and particularly in the U S when it happened, you know, the other side, the adult world, the reactionary side, which was the majority of Americans at that point, said, well, you know, they had it coming and they shouldn't have been there if they they didn't want to get shot, even though you know, the university was open and most of these kids are just walking to class with books in their hands. Mm -hmm. Or, uh, the, you know, a very common sentiment was we should have shot more of them. You know, to put an end to this period of unrest, it, it needed to be a show of force. It needed to be a lesson that these, you know, young radicals needed to learn. And my view when approaching 
that scene right from the very beginning was, okay, you know, you think that here's what it looks like. Hmm. Here's what it looks like when a bullet over an inch long goes tearing through a young girl's body. You know, this is what it looks like. And now tell me, you think, you know, they had it coming or we should have shot more of them. So that was my thinking. And I was very gratified. I mean, it, it really took some people aback, I know. And I've gotten comments from other in other interviews how, you know, how violent it is. And it's not comic book make-believe violence. I mean, it's, you know, I mean, it is, obviously it's comics, but I think it's depicted pretty realistically and pretty brutally. Mm-hmm. And I didn't spare that. And I was talking to... Uh, uh, the family of uh, Sandy Scheuer after the book came out. And um, she's one of the four who were killed. And it was her sister, who's still alive, Audrey, and her Audrey's daughter, who was communicating with me uh, on behalf of her mother. And I said, you know, this book's going to be tough for you to read because, and I explained to her about the violence and why I depicted it. And she responded, uh, oh, yeah, you have to show it. That's so important because people need to know. Mm-hmm. So that was very gratifying that she understood, you know, they understood what I was trying to do. And I think, I think most people who have read the book so far get that. That's that, though, that was certainly my reading that these images were appropriately hard to look at, right. um, but perhaps not so overwhelmingly visceral that they become spectacle. Exactly. Like it seems like the point is to try and raise our ethical standards and like mm-hmm. like when jeff is lying on the ground it encourages real mourning mm-hmm. i thought about the um the animated documentary from 2016 tower mm-hmm. yeah, that's really great that's a really great documentary yeah you know 1966 you've got a former marine charles whitman killing 14 and injuring 31 but if it's just if you just read it on wikipedia that's one thing if you see animated faces animated victims it's, I think um, you're giving people a different way of understanding, way of relating emotionally to it uh, that makes it a lot more difficult to just dismiss this violence as somehow inevitable or necessary or something um, mm-hmm. or just abstract, worse, worse than anything. And, and we are entering a period where, as you say, the right wing kind of propaganda machine is trying to kind of re-encode that violence in ways that make it seem appropriate you know, Trump talking about the Jacob Blake shooting, you know, trying to narrate it as just a, a bad apple who choked, right? Mm-hmm. Comparing yeah. it to like a golfer who chokes. Right. Um, and even, you know, Rittenhauser shooting people in Kenosha, mm-hmm. you know, this this idea from people like Tucker Carlson, you know, these mo- moronic windbags who want to defend these actions. Um, you know, it's it's we're reaching a kind of fever pitch when it comes to this, this like attempt to, I think, re-narrate violence is somehow necessary almost. Well, know? it's one of the, it's, it's one of the lasting impacts of, of Kent State in that era is mm. that uh, the right wing, particularly Nixon and his cronies felt that, you know, they had lost control of the press mm. and they wanted to cook up their own press. And that's where Fox News was born. It was actually a Nixon idea. They were going to have Republican TV, I think they called it. Mm. And it was Cheney and all those guys who were, you know, thinking of in terms of, you know, creating their own media. And it took them a while, but uh, um, 
it eventually happened and now it's it's just almost it's it's almost consuming i mean they've had so much success with it that now they're just buying up media everywhere and they're they're just almost taking it over popular media i mean down to the local tv level in the u.s which is owned by this noxious corporation of uh owned by a right-wing fanatic who's mm-hmm. just uh, repackaging you know stupid local tv news which is the only media that some people get, you know, if you live out in the boonies because newspapers yeah. are dead and magazines are dead. So you only get it through this one thing or your Facebook feed, which God knows is subjected to this, these same kinds of forces. Um, so, you know, that's, that's, that's one of the impacts of Kent State. And your book is, is aimed at offering a corrective. Like one of the things I noticed too, is that it feels balanced, which is an interesting narrative, you know, kind of narrative choice in a, in a sense. Hmm. Um, you know, you, you show at the same time as you show, uh, the national guard as this kind of impersonal oppressive force. You're also showing the fear that existed among those people, right. right? And, and trying to encourage a level of, if not sympathy, understanding for, you know, where the violence came from. Um, and, and similarly, I think, you know, it speaks to the way in which today, uh, we can see the same images, the same people, the same suffering in two completely fundamentally different ways. Um, like people like Mark and Patricia McCloskey, for example, this couple from St. Louis (laughs) who pointed guns at protesters were reclaimed by the right. They spoke at the Republican national convention. So, I mean, like it, these are people who were ultimately indicted for doing this. Right. right. And yet are, are, are lionized as somehow defending white suburbia or something. Well, truth um, is truth is malleable anymore. Yeah, you know, I mean, yeah. it's it is whatever truth is, whoever shouts the loudest. Right. Um, and that's that's something that, uh, you know, the right wing learned very well. And the left wing, I don't know if they've learned it as well. But, um, uh, you know, I was not, I I, I was not trying to be um, so much balanced. I mean, I think the book has, Mm. definitely has an opinion. I mean, Mm -hmm. my sympathies very obviously lie with those who were shot because they were the ones who were shot. (laughs) And one side had guns and tanks and helicopters and gas and the other side had words. And, you know, so, my sympathies will always be with the protesters, but I did want to get in that experience that the guard had because I thought it was interesting. Um, there is beyond all of that. There's a level of malevolence there. There was there was a malevolent act that occurred on May 4 that at some point this small group of guardsmen, and it wasn't you know there were 1,200 guardsmen on that operation, so we're talking maybe a dozen people. They, uh, they decided for whatever reason, and we still don't know, you know, we've had enough, wait for the signal, pick your target, and we're going to let these fuckers have it. And that's really at the heart of this story. And, you know, you can't just, uh, the guard and the authorities went to great lengths to downplay that or cover it up, and they got away with it. But that is still at the heart of what happened there, is that these guys decided we're going to shoot. Yeah. And you're, you're working so hard to try and, you know, expose this thing that has been, you know, uh, uh, there's been collusion effectively to try and ensure that it's just lost to history, right? It's seen as an accident. And, oh, yeah. 
It's one of the most successful cover-ups and certainly in American history. Yeah. And, and what the way, one of the ways that you do that is by talking about the, the kind of profile of particular like, uh, uh, leaders, right? General mm-hmm. Del Corso, you know, you talk about him politicizing his position as head of the national guard mm-hmm. and, and admit that like that was unprecedented then, but it seems like mm-hmm. that is now widespread under Trump, right? There was this NYPD officer who was, you know, broadcasting on his loudspeaker, Trump 2020, I guess he was like fired, but it's now widespread, this kind of politicization, um, even yeah. mask wearing, right? It becomes this like culture war. It's yeah. unbelievable. Yeah. It's disgusting. Yeah. Jared Kushner, the audio of him talking about taking the country back from the do- doctors, right? Like right. It's, it's these things that are like that are fundamentally just about the objective fact of human flourishing and, and life are, are now politicized in ways that are like, can we go back from that as, is one of my, like, go back to what, go back to 1970. I don't think we want to do that. Go back to, I, I don't know, go back to some, you know, forever, like a nostalgia for something that was never there. Right. Like yeah, exactly. a kind of moral exactly. clarity we never had. I mean, it's always been there. Go back to what, you know, 2001. I mean, you know, fair enough. It's, it's, uh, these things, I mean, they ebb and flow a little bit and rise and fall, but I mean, it's, I think it's been this way for a long, long time. And, uh, um, I, I really, I have no answers for you there. I'm afraid no words, no words of comfort. I mean, I think about, sometimes I think about, uh, you know, what my grandparents lived through in their lives, you know, I mean, they were born in the early 1900s mm-hmm. and they lived through World War One, which was, you know, hideous. And then their pandemic, which killed, you know, far more people than yeah. uh, than the uh, than COVID has. And it's something that I don't even remember learning about when I was a kid. Yeah, it was immediately forgotten. Kind of blown me away it's like my grandparents never talked about it they never brought it up um but you know i mean the numbers were staggering about how many people died from that and then they go through with the rise of fascism and then the great depression and then they world war ii which absolutely consumed everything and then you know the red scare and korea and vietnam i mean it was just one thing after another and finally into the 60s which was a extended period of stress and anxiety and it seemed like the country was tearing itself apart just like as it does now mm. so i mean it just this just may be the norm man you know i wonder yeah i mean i i feel i feel what you're saying but i wonder <laughs> how much it has to do with the words we use almost like there there's a way clearly that you know this this culture war is really based in discourse itself like you mentioned the red scare and and the book is so much about the fear of communism mm-hmm. and this massive commie plot and these preposterous rumors around it. You can you can draw a direct line between that and today. Sure. And the attacks on Bernie Sanders and what Trump likes to call AOC plus three, the so-called squad. Right. I mean, you know, d- democracy is under threat. It's almost as though the very notion of democracy is under threat in a weird way. Mm-hmm. And that that requires, it seems to me, almost like a reeducation that comes from like thinking beyond our own winning and losing our own lives, our own camp, our own campaign. Um, well, this is a more, this is a more conservative country than, than yours. Hmm. I mean, you know, the left wing has never really had a seat at the table of government here. 
Mm. Um, you know what they call the left wing you would you would call you know moderate conservatives i Mm -hmm. mean it's that kind of uh, definition of terms and you know then there's the whole religious element because after all the united states america was founded by a group of zealots who were so obnoxious they were kicked clean out of the then developed world um so it would be, we, we have that element as well. And, you know, the zealotry is really on the rise, which is, I think, more terrifying than anything. As, and, and this is the thing. I mean, in, in some of your other interviews, you've been talking about how, you know, the, the only thing we seem to be missing is the actual spectacle of like civil war of people right. like, you know. Um, We're very and, close, very, very close. We'll see what the week holds or the month. Right up until January, what, January 21st, I think, is when power has to change hands, if it changes hands. So, yeah, it could be months of unrest. Yeah, it's it's going to be grim. And then, you know, the question is, well, well, I mean, purely from a selfish standpoint, will anybody give a shit about a book about 1970? <laughs> uh, it's a tough year, a tough year to try to, to, to uh, launch a book, I'll tell you that. It's been a challenge. And, you know, you, you know better than I do I- intimately how a book can, uh, as I kind of said earlier, just sort of serendipitously find its way to people and, and mm-hmm. to the to the right people, as it were, to educate people. Um, I certainly hope the book finds a large audience. It's instructive. It deserves that large audience. You put obviously so much work into it. Yeah, it's a, no. It's a work of art. Yeah, it was kind of a, it was a really depressing thing. Uh, because it was supposed to come out in the spring mm-hmm. um, to coincide with the, the 50th uh, commemoration of the shootings. And, you know, that all went down the toilet in like the space of a week when the mm-hmm. lockdowns hit and the pandemic surged. And we decided to boot it to the fall just on the off chance that, you know, the, the, the pandemic would have eased a little bit by then. Of course, it didn't. The exact opposite happened. But um, yeah, it's, it's, yeah, it's just at a certain point, uh, you know, I just kind of gave up hope and said, well, it, it is what it is. <laughs> and, you know, I did the best job I could. Here's the book. I'm proud of it. I think it's a good book. Read it if you want, but you know, there's really nothing more I can do at this point. And it's too bad because it's gotten a lot of media, not so much here. Um, it has gotten some here in, in the U S and Canada, but, um, uh, Europe, it's been off the charts. I mean, they are really fascinated with it. But they were back in lockdown, too. So, you know, it's like, well, yeah, great. It's getting media, but nobody, none of the stores are open, so nobody can buy it. And I know these are petty concerns, given that the entire world is circling the drain. But, um, you know, I'm a comics creator. I'm allowed to be petty about my work. And I spent four years making this book. I want people to read it, you know. Especially since I think you've really hit on something. And I like from my perspective, the way to frame it to people is that it is this there is a continuum of violence and there is, you know, a continuum of what you've called elsewhere political rancor and and anger and polarization that's documented in the book. And and for that reason, it can really give us a, a kind of map to the present. Um, you know, I mean, uh, bigger themes, yeah, bigger themes. I mean, I don't want to make it sound like this is, you know, just some dry text about these uh, <laughs> grand schemes because really it's a very personal 
it's a very personal story because it's told solely through the eyes of the four. Well, there's five because also the guardsmen. And it's told, it's their experiences. We see the events as they see them. So the reader is really on the ground with them, walking those same steps. And that's what I was intending. That was my big idea at the beginning when I was thinking. Thinking about thinking about the narrative, you know, how am I going to tell the story? That was my idea. It's like, let's really make it personal. So when they're cut down, you know, you feel it. I mean, it 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 has a punch, and, uh, and yeah, maybe right. that's manipulative, but you know, that was that was my idea. But that's the nature of art, in some sense. I think is you know, songs are manipulative. The song Ohio is is incredibly you know urgent, but it's also got a kind of subtle you know, intoxicating quality, that guitar sound mm. conveys the emotion in this, in oh, this sure, interesting yeah. way. Especially in these um, parts. I mean, you know, we hear that, you hear the opening riff of Ohio and, you know, you just kind of, you just kind of stop for a minute and listen to it. That kills I mean, you. No matter how many times I've heard it. Um, and it, it's, it's a very special song here in Ohio, as you can imagine. Um, I can only guess. And and a special song uh, in Canada, in part because of Neil Young. I mean, I grew up listening to Neil Young and, and especially that song. And it just soars in this way that draws you in. But only honestly, after I read your book, I've been listening to that song repeatedly. And it's it's taken on new meaning hmm. uh, because of your book. Yeah, it's certainly one of our greatest protest songs, I think. Certainly. Mm-hmm. Certainly one of the greatest of the 20th century. Absolutely. Yeah. You're working on other projects, though. Could we? I mean, did you want to speak to that at all? What are you? No, no, no I'm not really. I'm not really. Yeah, I mean, speculative. Not, yeah, it's you know, it's it's hard to. Uh, it's been really hard to be creative. Uh, sure, I this year. I mean, I kind of got a steamrolled by 2020 recently too, because my mom just died of COVID. I'm so, so sorry. Yeah, yeah, I know. It's you know, it is what it is, and yeah. Um, she had a good life. She was, she was elderly, but you know, that's not the way I wanted her to check out. Certainly. Um, so it's, you know, it's been, it's been really hard to, to come up with something new. I mean, I've got some ideas. Um, some people are being very creative. I mean, they're just pumping out work, but you know, for me it was, and I've been focusing on selling this book as much as I can. I mean, you know, and it's all virtual, so it's all new and I'm doing a lot of these panels and podcasts and it's um you know i can't hit the road like i normally do so um those are the challenges that i'm facing and i don't seem to have a lot of time for anything else but at some point yeah i'll have to decide okay what's next mm-hmm. and people are people have asked me you know you're going to do something about the current situation it's like oh, god man i just i can't see it clearly you know what am i what am i supposed to say about it hmm um, you're getting a lot of in comics. You're getting a lot of those COVID diaries, lockdown diaries. For sure. Yeah, I'm saying they're all that. kind of the same. I mean, some of them have some clever things to say, but it's like, I wonder if it's going to be like you know, 9/11 was when I mean, we got very little out of 9/11. You know, hmm. a couple movies, but there's been very little done. That and is true. Like, do people really want to relive this? Yeah. They didn't want to relive 9/11. Do they want to relive this? I don't know. So that's interesting. I don't know what I'll do. Maybe I'll just do a goofy comedy next. You know, maybe that'll be people certainly need to laugh. No no question. And the best lockdown diaries have been that have been comedic for me. Yeah, they have been some of them. Some of them have. 
Um, I mean, you think about, you know, the 30s, which were as stressful a time as ever was. And, and what was media doing? It was doing, you know, goofy screwball comedies and Busby Berkeley musicals, you know, because people wanted that distraction. They mm-hmm. wanted the distraction that pop culture could provide. Yeah. So maybe maybe that's the way forward. I don't know. I mean, I like to mix it up anyway, so we'll see what comes out of this. Well, I, I look forward to seeing what you produce next and, and just hearing you talk about the relationship between the the kind of, you know, suppression of protest in the 70s and how now you've got a, you know, rampant militarization of the police mm-hmm. and a, a, you know, technological monopoly, really, uh, among that mil- militarized police force. Mm-hmm. You know, I, w- I would be very interested to see you kind of look into that further you know, there's there's documentaries like Do Not Resist that talk about the just scale of domestic surveillance today. Oh, you know? yeah, God, yeah, yeah. It's terrifying. Yeah, that's one thing that, you know, has advanced. That, again, is the lasting impact of the Kent State era, mm-hmm. um, that the authorities have developed, they've spent trillions doing this, developing this vast surveillance state and this this internal army whose really sole purpose is to crush unrest and civil protest. And, you know, it's, it's terrifying. These things really didn't exist in 1970 or 1968. They were much, I mean, they certainly had brutal repression, but out of sheer numbers, but it was with clubs and, you know, in the case of Kent state, obviously they were using military weapons, but, they didn't have that kind of surveillance state that they have now. Yeah. It was bad enough back then, but now it's just off the charts. And I think, you know, there's this interesting thing that, you know, uh, I think artists and communicators have this responsibility to kind of keep pushing, to prevent, you know, indifference to that apparatus, to, you know, prevent the invisibilizing of that apparatus, which is, you know, the way that it maintains its dominance in some ways, right? Like, well, I commented on that for years with my comic strip, which ran in those weekly rags that you used to see everywhere in front of every coffee shop in any major city. Um, because, you know, I was cartooning all through the 9-11 and the Patriot Act and the war on terror and all this bullshit that was happening in the 2000s. And I commented on that probably more frequently than I commented on anything. And yeah, it had zero impact and had, uh, you know, it just, I don't know if people weren't listening or they just felt that it was inevitable and there's nothing they could do about it. But yeah, that, the power of comics really. did not really, and I was not alone. I mean, there were a lot of us mm-hmm. in the weekly press who were, who were doing this and, uh, you know, it, it just, it just kept, kept right on happening and it's worse now than ever yeah i mean we're and you know part of the problem seems to be we're all in our so-called silos um you know and and are we're narrow casted too by these algorithms and so on mm-hmm. um there is a difference between you know the forbes review the way it misquotes ohio right how can we run when we know versus how can you run when you know like it's it's a difference between a certain kind of 
maybe self-righteous pedantic way of addressing the public which is like how can we run when we know versus well it implies a bit of anonymity there you know yeah. safety in numbers and there is none there is no safety in numbers because with a keystroke you know the cia or whoever can zero in on you and learn everything about you i mean yeah. they don't even have to be physically watching they have computers and ai doing it all mm -hmm. and they can access it and then it's and then it's game over at that point and we just need we need to know more but we also need people to kind of frame that information to provide you know an explanatory framework and honestly the characteristic way that you ask questions in your in your work i think models that in a way so, no answers but i do ask yeah. the questions yeah 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 <laughs> I never, I never presume to have any answers on anything, but I am good at asking questions. <laughs> well, Durf, uh, it's been an incredible pleasure. I'm a huge oh, fan. Thanks for having me, man.